Hello and welcome to Real Talk for Mums. Two personal trainers coming together through birth trauma to bring laughs, tears and a lot of real talk around the health and well-being of mums. Unedited, raw and unapologetically ourselves, Mags and myself, Lara, aim to empower mums with the knowledge and support they deserve to live their best lives. Come join us for a new episode every week. Hello, everybody. Uh, we are talking today. I'm very excited. I know I say this about a lot of episodes, but I'm very, very excited by this one because it's taken a little while to get Megan. I know it's Megan in Australia and in the UK, it's Megan um, on to talk to us about breastfeeding uh, because she was my lactation consultant. And I had a few when I had Monty and they weren't as good let's just say and then when I got Megan I was so pleased because as soon as you came to my house you started talking very openly very genuinely very matter of fact and you didn't make me feel like I was an idiot for asking any sort of question and you just helped me ask the right ask questions and feel comfortable and and know that I was okay in doing what I was doing and you you were okay with me messaging you and just yeah. freaking out a little bit. And um, I just think you're wonderful. And that's why I've decided to bring you on today. And I know this is this is Megan's first podcast. So <laughs> you have to praise her and congratulate her. And also, she's not slept. She's just had a night shift, haven't you? Yeah, yeah but that's okay. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, you're just like a lot of other mums who haven't slept Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about yourself, Megan, because I didn't want to introduce you. You know the best about you. And the worst, <laughs> probably, as well. <laughs> um, well, hello, my name's Megan, and thank you for inviting me to um, chat to you guys today. It's awesome. Um, I am a registered nurse, uh, an endorsed midwife, an international board certified lactation consultant. I'm also a hypnobirthing practitioner, and a little bit more recently, I've become a neuroprotective um, developmental care practitioner, which is run um, under the tutelage of Pamela Douglas, who's a, a breastfeeding advocate. She's a GP um, uh, lactation consultant in Brisbane, and she's done about 15 years of research and has put a whole, whole heap of stuff together to help mums in that early postpartum journey. So understanding their baby, understanding sleep, what's normal for them and breastfeeding. So that's been another little um, uh, thing that I've been able to add to my offerings, which is great. Um, I have worked in the maternity and childbirth space for a little over 26 years now, which is amazing, um, <laughs> but also horrifying to think how old I am. I'll be yeah. heading into my fifth decade pretty soon. I'm so um, experienced and skilled with it. Oh, but it's also a lot of time, isn't it? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And I've had quite a varied work life, which I've enjoyed. I've predominantly spent most of my time in um, the public setting, so dealing with low-risk and high-risk models of care. Um, I've done continuity models. I've worked in a private obstetrician's practice. Um, but for the last nine years, I've been working in private practice and um, offering uh, lactation services, hypnobirthing, midwifery stuff for women um, at home, which has been awesome. And that's the part that I really enjoy. 
Um, I guess my passion and drive for starting my own business was more to offer women another choice and offer them high quality sort of evidence-based care options. Um, I think a lot of women end up in the hospital system and they just kind of get carried along with the system and they really don't know that there's other choices and other options out there. I'm glad um, you brought that up, actually, because that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here, because you were so passionate about sharing that and frustrated that you couldn't share it enough and you just had to kind of zip it. Yeah, I think you are governed by processes, protocols, procedures, things like that within the hospital um, system and particularly in the public framework. So you do have to be a little bit uh, careful of what you say and do. Um, with uh, midwives, you can't uh, diagnose. That is a doctor or a dentist job. So um, we can definitely identify, but we can't diagnose formally. Um, so that's where it get, does get a little bit tricky in the public setting. Um, one big thing I notice is repeatedly um, I have seen and I continue to see is women who are let down by the system. So they're having fragmented care. Um, you're seeing different care providers. There's lots of various opinions. Um, a lot of it's not evidence-based. And I see a lot of birth trauma. So not necessarily the physical birth trauma, but that whole trauma of childbirth in itself mm. that breastfeeding journey all of that stuff is huge um, one of the reasons I do hypnobirthing is so that people understand their childbirth choices but from a breastfeeding perspective I think a lot of women don't put much time or thought into their postpartum journey you just focus on that one day which is generally birth you don't think about what comes be beyond that and seeing women, um, you know, traumatized by that breastfeeding experience, it puts them off. It put, you know, it makes that early parenthood difficult. That transition is hard enough for anyone, but it's hard when you're having lots of issues. So a lot of that stems from their birth. It stems from inductions, long traumatic births, those sort of things. It sets them up for a challenging time right from the beginning. It really does, and I'm I'm glad you said that because if I had have had you when I had Monty I don't think I would have experienced as much um, damage and emotional upset and mental health issues as I did if I yeah. had a bit better support um, I I didn't realize that I would my milk would be affected the fact that I had so much blood loss and I didn't mm -hmm. realize that it would have been impacted because I had such um, physical and emotional trauma yeah um, like you were saying, um, having that hypnobirthing side of things, because I didn't think about past having a baby. It was just, oh, I have to give birth, so I mentally need to get ready for that. And then it's like, mm -hmm. I don't think about the fact that I then have to bring up a child afterwards. Yeah, and most women don't. I think a, a very small population would actually focus a lot on their postpartum journey. They sort of just think of that one day and they invest in, you know, independent childbirth education. And I do cover that sort of stuff, but it's not in the same degree of having, you know, one person who comes to your home and tells you the same thing over and is there as a support and um, you know it doesn't necessarily have to be a one-off appointment it can be um, a package of appointments where you're seeing them right up to six weeks and that's when you see the best growth in people you see that they build that confidence really quickly you're not getting six or seven different people telling you lots of different things and getting confused yeah um, that's a big thing I think and a lot of people find that even in the hospital setting just in their short period that they are an inpatient 
you're getting lots of conflicting advice, all well-meaning, but it's it can be conflicting. It's so exactly that. Yeah, it's, it makes it hard for them to actually go, okay, well, what's going to work for me? Um, you know, what suits us as a family? So very hard. I don't know about listeners, but for me, I'm like, oh, my God, yes, you're saying exactly what I went through. I just had so many different people telling me in hospital, this is how you should feed. This is how you should hold them. No, you shouldn't do it that way. But I was like, just the nurse told me to do it that yeah. way just a yeah. second ago. But who should yeah. I listen to? First time yeah. mum freaking out. And the fact that you came to my house and you were there, and even the smallest thing, like, should I hold it this way or oh, I'm doing it this way? Or what do you think about this mm. latch? You were just like, yeah, carry on with that. And I was like, yeah, oh, OK, cool. So that I'm yeah. doing it right. Yeah. And I think a lot of women and same with birthing, you lose your instincts like you like I'm the professional. I know better than mm. you. Like, that's so not the case. Like women have to listen to their instincts and think about what's working for them. You know, um, some hospitals, yes, you stay in hospital a little bit longer after you have your baby, but do you get better advice? Maybe not. You might be getting, you know, five days worth of three midwives a shift, uh, sorry, a day that are giving you different advice all the time. So that can be, yeah, really challenging. Um, a lot of families too, I think, don't think about um, what breastfeeding might look like either. So they don't know what's normal. Mm. Um, they don't attend a breastfeeding class. Not that that's compulsory, but they don't understand what is normal and what's expected. Nowadays, we look for a quick solution and a quick answer. And sometimes there isn't one uh, yeah. immediately, particularly. There's so much that I learned from you about breastfeeding, even just so many little things that we're actually going to discuss today that I had no idea. And there's so much to breastfeeding and so many people struggle with it as well. Yeah, I think most people just go, oh, I've got boobs. I've got a baby. It's not going to be that hard. It's probably the hardest natural thing that you're ever going to do. Like yeah. it, it, it's really quite a challenge. You know, some women do have an amazingly straightforward transition to feeding and it goes really well for them. But in reality, that's the, man, I'd probably say the minority. Most people would end up with some sort of issues along the way. Um, it's so, exactly yeah. that, isn't it? Because But so many mums are told, oh, breastfeeding is natural. It's easy to do. And then when it's not, they're like, well, I've got it wrong. I should be maybe I'm not meant to breastfeed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And most women would stop breastfeeding. I'd probably say the majority of my client base would be between probably 10 days of age, right up to probably 16 weeks. That would be the bulk of where I would see people. And I would probably see a big portion of people where the wheels have already fallen off, like they should have seen me two, three, four, five weeks ago before they've got to that state. Yeah. I always think don't wait until it's too late to get help or don't wait until you're in such a state that you just can't see an end to it, that it just becomes this, you know, massively traumatising thing all the time. So, yeah, for most people, I think they wait too long to seek help. And you said there was a bit of um, a drop-off of breastfeeders around that sort of sleep issue phase. Yeah. Yeah. The four to six month period. Yeah, 100%. Most women, the only thing you can blame, you're never going to blame your baby that there's something wrong. You're always going to blame yourself. And the most logical thing is it must be breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. A lot of women do think that they don't have a lot of milk. They have that perceived um, thought that they don't have a sufficient supply. So that's a big reason why women stop breastfeeding in those early weeks. But most of them think it's because baby's mm -hmm. relying on them and they're waking 
waking up so frequently because, you know, they want to breastfeed. Sometimes mm. they do, but, it, you know, there's a lot more to breastfeeding than than waking up frequently. There's loads more that we have to consider and moving to a bottle or moving to formula isn't always the answer. No, and I think it's also it's not that you're just a first time mum. It, it's hard for second time as well, because I, I, I did think I've breastfed before it's going to be so much easier this time round. Yeah. And it was just as hard, if not slightly harder. Yeah, I would say a fair proportion of the women I see are subsequent children. I don't always think it's a first-time mum. Sometimes a first-time mum doesn't know that they have problems, so they don't seek help. Whereas when you've done it before and whatever's happened before, it does mean that you're more aware of um, you know, difficulties and problems with feeding. So I think for a lot of women, it would be second and third babies that I would see them because they just want to get it right. Yeah, wow. Did and you... As you know, having another baby, it's just easier to breastfeed than it would be to, you know, make up formula and do all of that stuff. It's just easier. And cheaper. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I didn't realise how intense it was, though, actually, solely breastfeeding because Monty yeah. was breastfed and formula. And I, I think that if I'd have had you first time, then it would have just been breastfeeding. I wouldn't have been caught in that top up trap mm. issue, which we're going to talk about in next episode. So mm. everyone needs to tune into the breastfeeding <laughs> myths. And I, yes, I, um, I think I would have been on breastfeeding solely, but it is constant and you don't get a respite. I think no. that's the thing why maybe sometimes mums do drop off as well, because it, it you have to be, with them 24 7 because yeah i mean arthur feeds every couple of hours all the time yeah you're not selling it no i'm really not i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) i i love it i do love it actually it does make me happy because um this is going to be my last one and i love that connection that you have i love that no one else can do it for me really deep down i know i complain not having that time but it's still my time with him and it's not for very long at all. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the beauty of feeding is it's got so many aspects to it. It isn't just about the nutrition. It's about that closeness, the bonding, all of those things are really invaluable for both of you. And you're going to get lots of, you know, benefits from that forever. You know, that stuff's going to be remembered. You know what I love? I don't know if this is true, that the fact that you can, the baby when they're poorly the the breast has this I don't know if it's a sense or antibody antibodies that come through from the baby yeah the breast then provides yeah sort of breast medicine milk medicine it does so if you think about has Arthur been sick yet yeah because he yeah so if you think of the snotty nose that's coming down while he's breastfeeding all of that in com- combination with his saliva touching the breast there's those receptors that go back and forth into the breast to create those antibodies and to make milk that's specific for him to help fight any illnesses that he's got so it's pretty cool how our body's got this inbuilt um you know medicine that works for them all the time amazing so, yeah it is pretty cool and likewise with mums who have their vaccinations in their pregnancy or if you get a cold or cough or any of those things those are the um, antibodies that you're making in your body which will then pass through the breast milk as well to help him so yeah yeah, it's pretty cool and is this there's one thing in breast milk that 
is only found in that to do with like helping with the gut is that a thing I don't know probably um, you're taking me back to my yeah. lactation exam where I have to know all of that stuff <laughs> intimately I'm gonna look it up and just see if there's a link or something that we can share for people I'm not sure if that's right or not but I will. yeah with there is something called lactoferrin which is in the body oh, yeah, which um, is something that's in the gut that really helps uh, set up a really good microbiome for the baby um, so, yeah, that's something that's in breast milk that uh, is transferred through as they get all that colostrum and all that good stuff at the beginning as well. Yeah, nice. I actually said to James, are you going to try my breast milk? Because his his friend who's a naturopath, he said, have you tried Lara's breast milk? It's got amazing stuff in it. You should try it. Put it in your protein shake. James was like, nah, I'm all right. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, people use it for bodybuilding and stuff. Exactly. They? Yeah. And they buy, they buy colostrum tablets as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's got lots of really good benefits to it, breastfeeding. It's not for everyone, but it definitely has got lots of bonuses. So, yeah. yeah. So talk to me, we'll go back a bit about your journey um, Mm. because you've had your own breastfeeding experience journey, haven't you? Yeah, I didn't have the best experience. Um, And again, I think a lot of it did come back to the birth that I had. Um, I had chosen obstetrician care in a private hospital, obviously with a private obstetrician. Um, I had that sort of philosophy that I didn't want to birth where I worked. What if I was a crazy banshee and I swore and, you know, was all mad and my colleagues kind of had to work with me again and they might have judged me for my behaviour in labour. So um, in hindsight, the high calibre of midwives that I worked with at the time, I was absolutely stupid to birth anywhere else, but I did. Um, And that was a really big mistake. And I do regret that. Um, The private hospital that I did choose was co-located with the hospital I work at. Um, And that was a really big thing for me because I did what an adult ICU or access to an adult ICU as well as a neonatal intensive care unit. Having said that, I had a very normal pregnancy. I was low risk and there was nothing wrong with my son. So I didn't um, I didn't need those things. But just that um, process of a public, uh, sorry, a private hospital, they don't have access to everything 24-7. So I just wanted to know that I could get that if I needed. Um, my obstetrician set up that seed of doubt right from the beginning that I was probably going to be a cesarean. And it was just those little comments and little suggestions along the way that did, you know, make me have that thought process. Um, nowadays I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't hesitate to change practitioners. Um, I guess back then I was still a midwife and an LC, but I just didn't, I guess you just don't have the balls to sort of go, oh, I'm just going to change practitioners late in the um, picture. Um, seeking a second opinion, I still think would have been a good idea. Anyway, he was on annual leave when my son was due. I had a good old 30th of December baby and not many private obstetricians (laughs) want to work around Christmas time. Um, So I had teed up two obstetricians that I worked with in the public system to see um, if they would be available to look after me, and they were. And um, when I had seen my original obstetrician, I had talked to him about not wanting to have any documentation that said I was a midwife. I wanted to be treated like a first-time mum. I didn't want to have that assumption of knowledge or more so I didn't want my husband to kind of feel like, you know, a bit of a leper in the corner that he wasn't a part of the discussions. 
So um, yeah, that was a big thing. But my um, backup obstetrician didn't know that. And she told uh, the hospital when I came in in labor that I was going to, that I'm a midwife. So that was a bit annoying. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I arrived, I was, I think, seven centimeters dilated. I didn't think labor was as bad as um, everyone talks about. It wasn't the most fun day of my life, but it definitely wasn't um, as difficult as I thought it was going to be. I did have a midwife that was pretty um, terrible. She literally offered me no support. She sat in the chair in the corner of the room. Um, There's lots of things that midwives do. So we listen to the baby's heart rate. We do things like that. And I had to remind her to do that. She just didn't. Um, So simple things like that. They bring you out of that birthing brain and you're into that thinking brain all the time. So I don't think I fully switched off my midwife brain. Like that was something that I always... um, Um, had going anyway I got myself to fully dilated I ended up pushing um, for just over two and a half hours Um, my obstetrician came in at that point and she identified that I had a brow presentation um, which is where basically the baby's whole uh, forehead comes down into the birth canal and it's something that's not vaginally birthable you're not gonna yeah you're not gonna be able to get them out vaginally so um I was then uh, moved into theater I was given a spinal anesthetic and I had an emergency cesarean at fully dilated so that was depressing because you've kind of gone through all that effort of labor wasn't that bad my pregnancy was good and you end up a cesarean Anyway, having said that, a cesarean recovery-wise, it was really easy. Physically, I healed really well, so I had no issues um, to that. But I guess that started that sort of, um, I guess, that negative thought pattern and those, um, you know, ideas that I'm a midwife, I'm an LC. Why did this, you know, why couldn't I do this? So that really started up. I, I never got postnatal depression or anxiety, but I just think it started that negative wording straight away. And so I was doubting myself right from the beginning. And I think you lose that um, instinct, that natural instinct that comes for you from you, which made it really hard. I had also chosen a private um, pediatrician who was a neonatologist. I'd worked with him in neonates. I respected him greatly. Um, He was really hugely eccentric. He was um, very experienced, but I had a really good rapport with him, which I um, absolutely trusted his professional opinion. And my son was fine. There was nothing wrong with him. So I didn't really need to worry too much. The biggest thing I noticed uh, was as soon as he was born, he was sort of taken over to the recess cot, brought back to me, and I could see a tongue tie straight away. He had a really tight frenulum. Um, And when a baby's born vaginally or bisection, they're usually not really happy to be born. They start crying. So you see all of that stuff really obviously. I was a midwife. I knew that a tongue tie, I knew the impact that that could potentially have. Um, But you listen to your healthcare providers and they say, it's not a big deal. You'll be fine. Um, My first uh, breastfeed in recovery, again, with the same midwife, um, she literally shoved his head onto my breast. Um, I had had a spinal, I had limited movement, so I couldn't feel a lot. and, And he caused a lot of damage for that first feed. Uh, I think she said to me something along the lines of, don't worry, you'll get used to it, which I thought that's great. Oh, that's um, Yeah. 
one of the big things as a lactation consultant is um, assisting women with uh, feeding hands-free. Like you should be able to talk women through. There shouldn't be any manhandling of boobs or babies. And that's something you see a lot of, unfortunately. Definitely. Yeah, so then I ended up in that horrible cycle of um, significant nipple damage, low milk supply, lots of tears, tongue ties. Did I mention tears? There was a lot of tears. Um, And my ped still didn't think I needed to do anything about it and I wasn't getting any help in the hospital at all. Um, On discharge, I did go across to um, my hospital and we've got a um, feeding service over there. There's a drop. It was a drop in service. Now it's a bit more um, appointment based. But there was a lactation consultant who was the only sort of LC that I knew about. I didn't know any private LCs. I don't even know if there was any back then. Um, and she helped get, you know, a better latch. But again, she didn't believe in tongue ties causing an issue either. It does. So I don't know. Thing, isn't it? They lots of people still don't believe. Yeah. It. No. Hundred percent. Tongue tie stuff is hugely contentious, and you know it's always an ongoing discussion that we have. Um, but it can cause lots of issues, and I think in my case it was um, the basis of everything for me. A lot of mouth tension, head tension, the position he was in, a lot of that stuff stems from all of that tension he had in his neck and his mouth. Um, so yeah I think that was a really challenging time because you can see that this is causing an issue you can also appreciate you're a new mum you're learning to breastfeed you're trying to get that right so this kind of stuff can still be normal Um, but then I sort of got onto that merry-go-round of breastfeeding still continued to be painful we were expressing Um, I was using a supply line because I'm supremely stubborn I didn't want to give a bottle Um, I was taking medication to increase my supply. I was finger feeding. I also had another um, thing called nipple vasospasm, which is uh, some people get, um, you know, white fingers and hands when it's really cold. You Mm. can get that on your nipples where there's that total loss of um, blood flow through to the nipples. And it stems from a poor latch. If you've got a poor latch, then this baby's just constantly doing damage to the end of the nipple. So I had to go on a medication for that, which is not a very pleasant medication to be on, but I couldn't tolerate breastfeeding otherwise. So it became really difficult. I did get his tie released. Um, I ended up seeing another LC in the um, hospital and she was amazing. And she probably saved me for a little bit of it. And we ended up getting a release and it still didn't improve everything. Um, A lot of things were improved, but not everything. And, um, you know, moving forward now, he's 18, um, incredibly stubborn. Um, That's not related to his tongue tie, but he's incredibly stubborn. Um, (laughs) Can do, but he's, he had loads of issues as a baby with grommets and um, gluey, lots of ENT stuff. Um, He's got a phenomenal upper lip tie and he's also had um, 
braces on for four years and he's got um he's still got a tongue tie so I don't think it was fully released and in hindsight with the knowledge and stuff I know now I would have a hundred percent you know pushed that a bit further and tried to get a much better release I think our knowledge has also increased hugely in this area which makes things different but it's still really hard for mums and babies to get someone to listen to them to identify that you know things are a problem so, yes, it wasn't the best journey. Um, I probably stuck with one child purely for that reason, but that's okay. <laughs> Got one, he's healthy. <laughs> There's so many things in what you've just said I, I want to cover because one is the tongue tie, the fact that you link it to um, having issues with the grommets and the ENT thing. So if yeah. you an undiagnosed tongue tie, that could be a reason potentially why Potentially. I mean, he just might have had manky ears and that was what happened. But yeah, um, there is a little bit of a correlation there. If we think about the eustachian tubes in the mouth and how closely related it is, but also the vacuum, the intraoral vacuum that babies have to get, that's what helps clear and move um, their ears all the time anyway. So for some of them, that's something that really struggles uh, for getting um, good clearance of the wax and things through their ears. There isn't strong evidence, but it's those, you know, little bits and pieces that you put together along the journey that you think, oh, well, could things have been different? He wasn't an amazing sleeper. He was a mouth breather. All of those sort of things, which we know with tongue ties are starting to become, um, you know, information that we're hearing, that okay. sort of stuff is, yeah, yeah. You just got to blame someone. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> it's, not, it's never the mum's fault. Don't... No. Oh. Although mums don't think like that. They always blame mum themselves. Always away. <laughs> yeah. My mum always says, as soon as you birth a child, you have mum guilt for the rest of your yep. life. 100%. So with the tongue tie, how do you get it um, diagnosed and removed or sorted? Yeah, so back when he's 18, so back then you only had the option of an oral surgeon, which is who we saw, and the oral surgeon that we saw was awesome. He has loads of experience, so there was nothing um, necessarily with the, the process or what he did. Um, I think nowadays we have the option of scissor release or we can also do um, laser release, which a lot of families move towards. Um, I'm not, I don't know which is better. I think it's probably practitioner related, like you need someone who's very skilled at what they're doing. Um, and I guess also the uh, thickness or the severity of the tie is also important. Mm. Um, as I said before, midwives and LCs, it's absolutely in our scope of practice to identify tongue ties, but we can't technically diagnose like a doctor can. So um, for some people, they have to see a GP to get a referral to see a surgeon. How do you get that referral? Because there's so many GPs who don't believe in tongue tie. Yeah, um, you know, a GP shouldn't be shouldn't refuse you a, a referral if it is something that you want to pursue. That's on you, and you're seeing someone else to actually get a second opinion and get some more information. Again, not every GP has experience with breastfeeding. Not every GP, um, you know, understands unless they've gone through it or their mum, their uh, sorry partner's gone through it. They may not understand or appreciate it. So it's, um, yeah, it can be challenging for families, but they shouldn't decline you a um, referral. Like that should be something that they do. That's good to know. Um, with the latch, 
Should how do you know if it's normal pain when it comes to feeding or if it's this isn't right? I need to look. Yeah, in- I was always um, taught as a, a beginning midwife and LC that breastfeeding should be painless, that women shouldn't experience any discomfort. The more women I see, I would probably say that first two weeks, there's discomfort. There's getting used to it. There's that um, learning to latch. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're not. And also your nipples, just um, getting used to being breastfeeding all the time. It does take a bit of time to adjust to that. So I'll often say to mums, give it that two-week mark. If you're still getting um, pain or things are still an issue beyond that, then seek help unless you can quite clearly see before that that things aren't right. So, you know, nipples bleeding or whatever it is earlier than that, that's something to it seek a bit of support. Me. Yeah. My right nipple, it was grazed. Yeah. Came to you, I think Nikita referred me probably like the three-week mark. Or yeah, something. I reckon two, just yeah. over two weeks, yeah. yeah. Um, And you said, okay, there's something not right about the right side. So we actually... Um, went to a chiropractor as well didn't I to look at the the, um, neck positioning and that was an issue so he couldn't turn his head to the side either so yeah some of the things so in the scope of a a, a normal midwife who works in the hospital they may not have a, a hugely broad understanding of breastfeeding and everything that can go wrong they know how to support you with feeding they know how to get that latch right but they may not be able to problem solve things when they become a bit trickier um, likewise, they're only seeing you for a couple of visits at home. They don't see you for lots and lots unless you're in a continuity model. So they don't always know what's normal beyond a certain point. Um, so trying to um, figure out is this normal or not, it can be really challenging. And I think, you know, having the model that you had with a private midwife, you had that consistency of the same person and, you know, discussions and trying to suss things out each time. So it makes a big difference. But I would always think that two week mark, if things are still painful beyond that, then something's not quite right. And particularly things like grazes or persistent um, cracks and things in the nipple that just don't seem to go away or get better, that's something that's a bit more of a concern. And that's why things like assessing for tongue ties, it's not in the scope of a midwife because they just don't do it all the time. Um, you know, in, for an LC, we're looking for things like their reflexes. Um, we're looking at how they position in the bed. All of those things give us other pieces of information where we can bring in other practitioners. And it doesn't have to be a chiro. It can be an osteopath or a physio. It can be anything that can help get a bit of alignment for a baby to make it easier. Nice. Um, so things like um, birth trauma or a vacuum extraction or a presentation where baby's been a little bit off center inside mums, that's what they're going to do when they come out as well. They're going to assume the same positions. So they end up, um, you know, creating that sort of tension in different muscle areas. Yeah. I mean, it's just all of it links back with Monty's birth in that it was a forceps and it was a vacuum mm. it was treated as shoulder dystocia. And it's just, and then no aftercare of thinking about that. Again, had I known about you, I would have been in a different position. Yeah. <laughs> Hindsight's great though, isn't it? It is. And I don't think I, where I am now so passionate about this sort of thing. Yeah. I'm not no. going through that with Monty, as as you are as well. 
Yeah, and that's where I think you want to, and for me, like having such a shitty experience for breastfeeding, I I didn't want to be that LC. Um, One of the biggest things I do find when I'm um, in someone's house is, and, you know, say not that you did it, but you see someone at two weeks um, of age, they just want to talk about their birth. Like some of the um, initial consult might just be debriefing about what happened. And that's what I want to do. I want to sit there and I want to listen. And I think a good part of being a midwife that still works in a delivery suite, I can see where a lot of this has happened and I can, you know, actually debrief them on what's happened. So I think that is a quite um, valuable skill set to have to be able to listen. And even if I don't agree with what they're doing or don't think it's a good idea, just listening and going through that process and then gently offering other suggestions, I think that's more important rather than someone coming in and going, right, you're going to do this, this and this, and that's it. And that's where, yeah, women's intuition is really shoved out the door when those sort of things happen. Exactly that. I love that because there's so many experts that come in and say, this is the only way you should be doing it. I'm the expert. Yeah. But offering the just array of options to the mother and then letting them use their intuition to, to be like, okay, well, this feels right to me. And then you just yeah. go, you just help them along the choice that they made. Yeah. And that's always something like if I've said to a mum or a mum is already expressing, expressing is traumatizing. It's horrible. You know, if a woman doesn't have to express, that's awesome. But if it's something that she wants to have as a part of her routine, I'll always say, what is it that work that's working for you? And what can we sort of adjust and make a bit more manageable, you know, coming in and having this amazing breastfeeding plan that's really in depth and really um, I guess narrow-minded to a point is not going to be something that she's going to sustain or do longer term because it's going to be too traumatic or too hard for her to do. So it's got to be something that fits in with the family and works for her because um, she wants to have a positive experience. Well, on that note, when it comes mm-hmm. to expressing and pumping, what are your thoughts on that? Because lots of mums do it and there's a belief that you need to pump in order to keep your supply going and then there's other mums who do it because they are going back to work and they need to express to give the baby a bottle in the day yeah pumping is not something I try to encourage I know um in the hospitals for instance they'll say breastfeed the baby then pump for x amount of time then finger feed the baby or top up the baby um Yeah, we call that triple feeding. Triple feeding is hard. It is very hard. And I'll always say to a mum, it's got about a two-week shelf life at the most. It's not something that's sustainable. It's not something you can do long-term. It is hard work. You're essentially feeding and playing with your boobs constantly. Like you don't feel like you've ever got a break. So normally in the first, um, you know, couple of weeks, I would say don't do any expressing, um, just try and keep feeding the baby, keep doing that as often as you can. When you add in expressing, you have a slightly higher risk of mastitis. It's time consuming, but also what are you going to do with that breast milk? Like, are you going to top him up or him, her, whoever, are you going to top them up or are you just chucking it in the fridge or the freezer for a rainy day? You know, those sort of things, um, you know, feeding the freezer is not important. Feeding the baby is. 
So I would always say to a mum, feed more often. And we know for babies, they need a minimum of eight feeds to 12 feeds in 24 hours to really thrive and do well. Um, sometimes it'll be more, sometimes less, but that's how they get the majority of their calories. And when you're feeding in accordance to what they want and not following a schedule, that's the other big thing I see, um, babies will really fall into that pattern where it's sort of two to three hourly and that's kind of their normal pattern that they'll fall into. They don't have to be long feeds. They can just be short. Um, you know, sometimes it'll be five minutes, sometimes it'll be 30, but that's regulating the supply and getting it to where it needs to be. Um, a lot of mums as well, uh, breastfeeding is a great way to soothe your baby. So they still get nutrition that way. That can be a way to avoid expressing. But the more empty your breasts are, the more milk you make. Yeah. And if you and if you're adding in a pump all the time, that's just an extra piece of the puzzle that's probably unnecessary. Feeding the baby at the breast, they're going to do a better job than the pump's going to do. Yeah. I am. Um want to talk about that cluster feeding because mm -hmm. I had no idea what that was when I was with Monty yeah. and I didn't understand it so those first two weeks he was like constantly like give me food give me food and then looking back it's probably like I didn't give him that food because I thought we've well, already been on the boob what why do you want to go again and my mum yeah. he, he just needs to be on your boob it's just feed all the time okay. he's sorting out his supply it's like I don't think that's the thing <laughs> what would your mum know she had five children what would she what would she know anything <laughs> Um, yeah, cluster feeding is absolutely a thing. Um, it is a super, super normal pattern of breastfeeding for babies. It's tough. It's really time consuming. It's exhausting physically, but also that mental um, uh, intensity of it is really hard as well. Um, classically, babies will cluster in the evening, um, but some kids will do it first thing in the morning. And that's more so if they've had a really long sleep at night. So they might have slept six or 10 hours or something at night. So then they wake up in the morning and they're hungry and they want to really build that supply and get as much milk into them. But normally it's in the later afternoon. So it can be somewhere from about 3 p.m. till midnight. Sometimes there's a period or a couple of periods in there where babies just feed more frequently and they're trying to build that supply up and they're trying to increase it for the next day. Um, the other annoying part about cluster feeding is it's a comfort measure in a lot of cases. Um, it isn't always about feeding. It's about um, comfort and being close to you. Mm -hmm. And some kids have got a really strong need to suck, like sucking is how they comfort themselves. So as soon as you take them off the breast, they're like, wait a minute, where's my sucker gone? I yeah. need something um, back again. So frequent feeding at night and in the early evening, um, sorry, the afternoon into the early evening, really normal. Um, I and think for a first born or yeah, yeah, any baby, I'd probably say um, the hardest part for that is it's usually when, um, you know, dad's getting home from work. Um, mums are trying to get dinner ready or you've got other kids or it's just the end of the day and you're knackered and you just want to switch off. Um, that's usually where it will happen, but it's any baby will do it. Um, sometimes every baby does it. So it's a really challenging time for a lot of families. Um, the other tricky part at that time is they get really um, irritable from uh, just 
tired, like they're just irritated from anything. And so the only thing they know is you and that comfort of being close to you. And I had Arthur when he was doing the cluster feeding and the evenings were horrendous. He was so angry and he would get annoyed that the letdown wasn't coming quick enough. And I didn't know that until I spoke to you because because I was thinking, well, why is he, what's the problem? Is boobs in his mouth? What's going on? Yeah, some babies are silly. They really are. They can't figure out that the breast is there and it's right in their mouth. <laughs> just close it and I suck it. It's there. You and you said, yeah, sometimes they're just stupid. Yeah, it's literally. <laughs> you just made it just so much more fun and yeah, simple. Yeah, no, they really are silly. They, you know, the breast can be literally in their face, squirting milk in their right. face, and they're like, where is it? I can't find yeah. it. So, yeah, very normal. I think um, with a lot of babies in that scenario when they are cluster feeding, it is about the letdown. Um, so when we look at a, a breast towards the end of the day, it's usually got a slightly less volume in it. Um, it'll have lots of fat content in it, but a less volume. And if you've got a baby who's used to having a fast flow and lots of milk coming really easily, they can get frustrated with that. So yeah, absolutely. They do get um, irritated from the letdown. So then they're, you know, mouthing around at the breast, tugging on the nipple, doing all that sort of stuff out of frustration because they just want it instantly. And that makes you think, oh, maybe they're not getting the milk. And again, it's that cycle of, yep do it I'm not providing milk let's get some formula yeah and that's again where understanding that normal physiology of what to expect with breastfeeding is massive like you know your breasts are going to go through some phenomenal changes in that first six months so knowing what's normal and those periods that are normal and I think also for mums just normalizing breastfeeding in itself you know you telling your mate that breastfeeding shit is awesome like that's helping them to actually know okay this is going to be a challenge and it's increasing that those I guess, adjusting those expectations for them. Um, But yeah, it is a hard one. And I always say to mums, you know, try and get dinner ready at lunchtime. If you know that's sort of happening later in the day, try and make things a bit easier for you. When baby's um, napping during the day, try and have a nap, try and lay down, um, have a cup of tea, anything like that, that just conserves a little bit of energy. You don't have to get in and clean the house and do all of those stuff in that frantic hour that they're asleep. Um, you know, can you get your partner to step in and, um, you know, offer a bit of a break or hold the baby for a little bit, something like that, that just breaks that cycle briefly, um, you know, reduce the stimulation around, turn the TV off, turn yeah. Monty off for a little bit, That's all of those exactly sort of things. It was the stimulation yeah. for him. Yeah. Um, and what else helped was um, my mum making a lot of cake. I was oh, just- nice. <laughs> <laughs> Feed cake water, feed cake water. Perfect, perfect, sounds ideal. Um, And the other thing I always say about cluster feeding is just making sure that you are drinking enough, you are eating enough, that your milk supply is okay because your nutrition's okay. That's still a really big part as well. I think, um, you know, you get to lunchtime and then you forget to drink until after dinner. You know, a lot of the time you're not really getting those good calories that you still need. So is your supply a little bit lower because you're a bit deplete in other foods as well? So it can just deplete. You can't just have good supply you have to make sure you're still maintaining food like and stop focusing on trying to lose weight postpartum bouncing yeah 
calories just get it in get the liquid yeah you probably need about five to six hundred more calories a day to sustain breastfeeding and breast milk is liquid so you need to make sure your um, water intake's high as well so yeah a lot of women they forget to feed like sorry forget to eat they just you know you're busy doing things and you do forget so you sometimes have to force yourself to have some nuts nearby or a muesli bar or something like that that just keeps up that constant little bit of um, calories consistently. Okay. You know, no supplements, no teas, any of that stuff. It's not going to work. It's about nutrition and, you know, fueling your body as best you can to sustain well, it. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. It's led on to my next how to increase um, milk supply. And you often get this... Um, to increase supply, you have to have these lactation cookies, but they're just bullshit, aren't they? They're not. It's yeah, just- they're an amazing marketing tool. Like They've got some phenomenal um, marketing behind them. There is zero evidence to support anything that you take and even some of the medication that we suggest that it will work. I think it's uh, brewer's yeast and fennel. Yeah lots of people rave about yeah so things like fenugreek they have um contraindications so people with thyroid disorders for instance shouldn't take that but the average person doesn't know that Mm -hmm. so um you know there can be some medical conditions that can impact breast milk production as well so thyroid polycystic ovaries diabetes there's quite a few that can influence um, the volume of milk you make so if we start adding in supplements which are marketed exactly for breast milk production, it can impact it negatively. Um, all of those teas, the cookies, the smoothies, all of that stuff, it is absolutely marketing. There's absolutely nothing behind it to support, uh, to support feeding. The biggest thing is frequent removal of breast milk. That's the only way to increase supply or sustain su- uh, supply longer term. Okay. That's amazing to hear. Um, Let me talk about, I had a question around nipple um, confusion. Yeah. Like, because I, with Monty, I had nipple shields because they were so sore. Yeah. Because my nipples weren't out, they weren't prominent enough. So I used shields. This guy didn't want shields. He doesn't want dummies. He doesn't want bottle. He doesn't want anything but breast in his mouth. Um, Do you believe that that causes breast the nipple confusion thing yeah nipple confusion's a tricky one I think generally babies will take whatever's offered to them you do sometimes get finicky babies that won't have a bottle or they're you know a bit fussy about the type of dummy they have that's okay that's normal as well um, I think for most kids, though, if you were flipping between bottle and breast pretty regularly, they'll probably take both of them pretty easily. One thing I do find is nipple shields are often introduced um, incorrectly. They're often given to mums for sore nipples. And if you think about a shield sitting over the nipple, um, it's quite a long shield usually. They've got quite a bit of like distance. Yeah literally pointy boobs so it fills up baby's mouth it gets right back to that soft palate but if you think about then when the where the gums sit they usually sit on the nipple and they compress the nipple constantly and they keep doing that so a lot of mums still get nipple pain sometimes worse nipple pain 
They're often incorrectly sized as well. So they come in lots of different sizes and shapes and women often have the wrong size for them, which again, creates friction and discomfort. So um, I will very rarely introduce a nipple shield. I'll try everything else I can before I would suggest a nipple shield. Okay. And they're a pain in the butt to get rid of. Yeah. But once a baby becomes reliant, they're really hard to get rid of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just thought they were horrendous in the first yeah. place. They're very commonly introduced in the hospitals, probably private hospitals more so. And they are, if you can appreciate looking after five women and everyone's got breastfeeding issues and things are a bit complicated, if that short-term solution of a nipple shield works... Why would you not use that? Um, yeah. But it does impact things um, otherwise. So we try to avoid it if we can. What would you say to um, mums who are breastfeeding in public and you get people commenting on them breastfeeding negatively? Yeah, it still amazes me that this happens. Um, yeah. It's usually a little old nana or someone that makes a comment about it. It just um, floors me every time I hear it. Um, a lot of women are super anxious about breastfeeding in public. It's actually um, a part of the Sex uh, Discrimination Act, which was brought in in, I think, the early 1980s, and it's absolutely illegal in Australia to discriminate women against a person, so um, chest feeding or breastfeeding, with anyone who's um, directly or indirectly uh, related to breastfeeding, so on the grounds of breastfeeding, so that includes expressing. Um, so a couple or probably about 10 years ago, there was a actress, I think it was Kate Langbrook. She was told in a, a cafe that she had to get out because she was breastfeeding her baby. It's actually against the law for restaurants or cafes or anywhere to do that. Um, so I think those sort of things are still things that women hear and they worry about that sort of stuff, but it's absolutely discrimination. I think so feeding, yeah, sorry. When you get the library that say, welcome breastfeeders, it's all yeah. you saying that, but does that mean everywhere else doesn't? Well, well, I just think it's not advertised. So places like community settings, um, you know, libraries, those sort of things, they'll always have a little sticker that says breastfeeding welcome. You know, some cafes will have that as well, particularly if they have a high proportion of um, mums that go to their cafes. Um, and, you know, that's just that visual cue for women to know that it's okay, that they can go there and feel supported and safe. Um, you know, if you think about going and sitting at Marion and sitting at one of the, um, you know, just in one of the little uh, chairs that's out the front of Coles or something like that and whipping it out and feeding, for most people, that's pretty confronting to walk past and see someone's breast. But you generally don't see the entire breast. And I think that's what a lot of women forget. Mm. Most clothing that we have nowadays for uh, mums that are breastfeeding, it covers the mummy tummy and um, the top part of the breast and the baby's head will cover the uh, the other part. Mm. It's just, a, I think, in a lot of cases, how confident do mums feel to do the action of getting their baby on the breast? And that's where I think a lot of that anxiety comes from. Yeah, I remember practising quite a lot at home with mom but then I had a, a good friend who was so confident with breastfeeding she had these huge boobs and she would just there in public take them out like this yep open whack them on and she was just like whatever I'm breastfeeding yeah 
No, you always get someone who double takes and will have a look again and, you know, awesome to people like that that are super confident to do that, but the majority of people wouldn't be. Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing is, you know, again, going to shopping centres, you've got mums and parent rooms that you can go to so you can feed in public there or not in public, kind of in public. The other thing I always suggest to mums is, practice feeding in different chairs and different places around your home. Most people, when they, um, you know, set up their beautiful nursery, they've got this amazing rocking chair and they've got everything set up in the nursery and they barely go in there or they go to the same place all the time and they feed in the same way with their pillow or their, you know, chair or whatever it is in the same way, which is good for getting it right, but it makes you pretty rigid in how you latch your baby. So practice sitting in the the bar stool near the kitchen counter or sitting in your ch- uh, kitchen chairs or going to the park and sitting on a park bench. All of those things make you hold your baby differently and learn to feed in different positions. So then when you are out at a cafe, you don't feel overwhelmed with it. You're, out, you're quite comfortable to do it. What about in Marion Shopping Centre on the floor, cross-legged while Monty has a tantrum? Whatever floats your boat, <laughs> if it works, you've got to be down on his level as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, I'm going to roll with this because... Yeah. I- nothing else I can do. Yep. It's like, whatever. The other really good thing are baby slings. Um, If a mum can actually master feeding in a sling, that's awesome. Um, Nursing in public with a sling is really um, discreet and easy to do. Um, It also doubles as a carrier. So you don't have to take your pram and all the rest of the stuff with you and, you know, just open your top when baby's ready to feed. So it can work really nicely for a lot of mums. I always admire mums that can do that. It seems so lovely. And I'm just like, how? How do you get Yeah, bigger of- boobs do make it a little bit more challenging. <laughs> Sometimes they don't always sit exactly where we want yeah. them to be. But, yeah. Um, the other thing I often will say to mums for public feeding is uh, try to feed baby before they get too hungry or too hysterical. I mean, that's hard enough at home when you've got all your bits around you. But when you're in public, that just increases that anxiety. People turn around, you feel self-conscious, and that just makes it a little bit more harder for them to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, amazing. Megan, is there anything that you want mums to know to leave with that? is important to you that just keep feeding and keep pushing through it I think is the biggest one um yeah I think a, a lot of women quit before their time or quit before they've got support I think is the biggest thing so knowing that it's hard knowing that it's challenging yeah. and get some support and the right support it seems like because there's a lot of wrong and mixed advice out there and it can get confusing Yeah, absolutely. It can do. And I'm not saying I'm the right support for everyone either, but it's about, um, yeah, finding someone that isn't aligned with your, that is aligned, sorry, with your values and what you're trying to achieve. And sometimes you need a couple of appointments. Is that one person the right person? Do you need to see someone else? Yeah. Yeah. So it can definitely be a bit of a a challenge to find the right person and find, um, yeah, find something that's workable for you, I think is important. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much for this. It's been a problem. I've loved having you on. And for those who want to get in contact with Megan, Megan, um, you can reach out to her. I'm going to share all of the links below the show notes uh, for you to reach out to her. And if you think this 
um, podcast can benefit anyone, anyone listening, any mums who are struggling with breastfeeding or want more information, then please um, share this episode. And if you have any questions or comments, I'm sure Megan will help answer them at our email address, realtalkformums at gmail.com. Uh, thank you so much. And make sure Pleasure. you to Megan's next episode, which is going to be on breastfeeding myths. Did I say I was coming back? Oh, yeah, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks so much. No Bye. problem. Bye.